Hey, welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Brialis with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Raheem Young. How's it going, brother? I'm good, man. How you doing? Good, man. Good. All right. And also, I'm pleased to announce a special guest, uh, Mr. Mike Wilkins. How's it going? Uh, introduce yourself to the people and uh, let us know how many kids you got and their ages. Uh, my name is Mike Wilkins. Thank you for offering this to me, Sir Royce and Raheem. I'm age 61. I have five kids. Oldest is about to be 40. Um, the youngest is about to be 30. Um, and so I've been in this game for a little while, raising kids. I got six grandchildren, another one on the way here in about a week or so. Been blessed. Can't complain. I did. I didn't start out right though. So I, I'll admit that I did not start out right. I wasn't the father that I was supposed to be. I was kind of, you know, making the kids and running and and not doing what I was supposed to and had kids out of wedlock. And I just had a, a little talk with some friends, especially my mom, mm-hmm. kind of put me back on the right track. And, you know, I ain't gonna lie, I was living out of my car because of the amount of child support, but I wanted to pay it because I, I work in the industry now with people that are on assistance and I see how I can devastate children when the father's not around and yeah. when the finance is not around. And so I was working three or four jobs, I didn't care, but I did get a chance to have the children with me. Their moms all came to me, hey, they're going with you. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, I ain't ready for all that, you know, but it was a blessing because it worked out and I got to plant them seeds that I wanted to plant. And, you know, my children said some things to me. Why are you, why are you so hard on us? Why, why do you want us to do these things? And then when they got out of school and, and made it, they came back and thanked me. Oh, thank you, Gat. Thank you for teaching about stocks and bonds. Thank you about teaching. Why, why did you feed kids when, when we were kind of done? I said, I was trying to pay it forward. I said, you know, you had a place to stay. You had a bed to sleep in. You didn't have nobody raping you, beating you. These kids had nothing. Mm. And so feeding them a little bit of something just gives them hope. And I, I feel like, you know, we as black men really, really need to crunch our numbers and start doing our job because when I look at the statistics of the number of us that are not in the home or not part of the family, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. You know, I can't say that in other parts of the world because it, it seems like it's different. It's more ingrained. But in America, because of what slavery's done to us, we kind of, I think, lost that pathway. It's mm-hmm. unfortunate. You know, certain things get said to us and maybe we hit the door and run. I know that's what it was with me. Like, forget this. Not thinking mm-hmm. about the effect of the child. Mm-hmm. To me, there's some long-term effects that really can devastate them because they don't get to know who they are and whose they are. Yeah. And so I'm probably talking too much, but I, I had to get back on track, man. I, I felt like I had lost my way. And I, I don't even gonna lie to you, I felt guilty every time I saw a child with his father. I just felt guilty. Mm-hmm. It started hey, eating away at me. Can you talk about your relationship with your dad? How, how was that? It wasn't good. I didn't know my dad as a child. Um, I got to meet him, you know, off and on points. The good thing is that in 2000, oh man, 2007 or eight, my father came back uh, to Washington State. I was an ordained minister at that point, and he asked me to baptize him. And man, I I bawled. I I was like, what? I I mean, I kind of cussed him out first, and then I had to forgive him. We had a long talk, and we worked it out. And I became his caregiver before he passed away. And so we had a very bonded relationship. And I just learned a lot that 
you know, it doesn't matter when they come back into your life. It's mm-hmm. just the fact that they do. Yeah. And you have to accept it for what it is. His father died when he was kind of young and, you know, he didn't, his father was in his life. He just didn't understand what it was like to be a father. I said, that's not an excuse because you don't understand. I mean, there is no playbook. No. You kind of learn as we go, yeah. but you need to be there. And so, you know, I told him that and he, he repented, but it was hard. I'm not going to lie. My mom was my dad. Mm. So do you think like you not really having um, early on, not really having a close relationship with your dad that impacted the way that you um, saw fathering early on in your life? I'm going to say yes and no, um, Raheem, because some of it was me. I, I got to take mm. some accountability. Some of it was me. It was, you know, I was thinking about the money and um, my my first child's mom and I, I was in love with her and, I found her messing around and it kind of tore to the core of me because I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And so when I saw that, I just bolted and I wanted to go get my daughter. So I would go get my daughter every weekend and that worked out, but I wanted to be a part of her life in more of a profound way and, you know, with her mom, but it just, it wasn't going to be, and I didn't know how to handle that. And so I had to go talk to somebody and that person was my mom. She just led me straight. She said, you know what? You got to make the best of the situation. Look what I did. Look at the sacrifices I made for you. And I was like, you're right, Mom. She said, I don't care if it takes two or three jobs. I'm going to turn you into child support. When she said all that, I was like, man, she's preaching to the choir over here. But it made me grow up. It just made me grow up fast. And I was like, you know what? No more excuses. But then I had another kid. And it was like, okay, now what am I going to do? And so I always worked, but it was just not that plan. You know, when you don't have a plan, you live on somebody, you know, my teacher used to say something to me that really stuck in my mind. You fail to plan, you plan to fail. Mm-hmm. And I said, yep. That kind of is the way I think sometimes it happens for some of us when we don't have that rearing that we need. We don't make a plan and then all these things start happening to us and we don't know how to handle it. And that's what it was for me. And I just thank God that I was able to mend my relationship with my father. I have a stepfather that came into my life when I was in the 10th grade that really really helped me build this foundation. He was the one that was kind of speaking to me here, Michael, you better than that. You need to be a father for your children. You know, it's like, man, you're talking to me. You know, I wanted to get with him, but he was talking so much wisdom that I couldn't ignore it. And we still have this relationship to this day that I can call him, talk to him about anything. And he's really like my biological father, but through a spirit, if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so he was there for you. during your your, uh, your childhood experiences. Yeah. Um, what about your dad? Um, how was your relationship with, with him like growing up? Well, like, your like I told uh, Raheem, I really didn't have a relationship with my biological dad. He was in and out of our life here and there. I mean, when I saw him, I tried yeah. to gravitate toward towards him, but he uh, ended up uh, going to prison three times. So he was gone, then he moved to Alaska. So it's like we were here, he was there. He was out of my life. And so basically, my mom was kind of my dad. There were some male figures in our lives, but they're pretty much one that, you know, she was having a relationship with. But it was in school where I really got the foundation from this teacher that happened to be from Yugoslavia. He just would say things to me, and I guess he saw something in me that I didn't see, but he would just push me and, you know, say things to me. And I'm like, 
I just do always in my ear. You know, you know, all black school, you need to shut up. Leave me alone. You know, you in the ghetto, man. You know what you're talking. I had all that sharp tongue stuff, but he said things that to these days I remember, you know, you're a big fish in a little pond. Wait till you get out in the ocean, have to swim in the gabby. What you gonna do? And I was like, oh yeah, he's right. <laughs> you know, and so I had to think about all that. I was a straight A student all through high school, so I had the inklings to do right. I just didn't have the total foundation to push me. Mm. And every time somebody would give me something that, you know, could give me glory, I just didn't know what to do with it. I mean, I'll tell you fellows this. I got a job at IBM when I was in high school in the ghetto. In the ghetto. A lot of people don't have that. And it was in the, I got it in the 11th grade. Um, There was 16 high schools in Oakland, all interviewed. So one school student from each school. Mm. I didn't have the highest GPA. They picked some of the people with the highest GPA. There was a Caucasian student that came that had a 4.6 grade point. I was like, how do you have a 4.6? <laughs> I don't know. 4.6. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. And uh, so something told me to do my due diligence on IBM and find out who the founder was. And, all. and so I got to the interview early. That's what my mom taught me. And this guy showed up 20 minutes late. I think he was riding on his accolades. I didn't have any. All I had was my name and my school. And so when I got there and gave him all this information, this dude, the president, wanted to see me. I was like, well, uh-oh, I done done something wrong. But they sent me down and said, we, we'll hire you tomorrow. I said, get out of here. What? And I don't know if you know minimum wage back then, but it was like a dollar something. I got paid four fifty an hour. So yeah. I was on wow. top of the world. That's really cool. So that's the equivalent of, like, making 20 bucks an hour now. Like, a little more, more, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, I, I mean, it helped. It helped my family kind of break the poverty level because my mom wasn't working. So I was paying the rent. I was able to get a car. I was able to do a lot of things, but they also gave me a polished foundation. I mean, they didn't play with me while I was there. They showed me some things. I saw some things. I learned things about computers that I can't even remember to this day, but I'm going to tell you, so Royce, it, it cemented my foundation because every time I went and applied for a job and put that on my resume, I automatically got the job. You worked at IBM? I was like, yeah. Learn nothing, but it's the credibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially for a black man. So you you grew up in Oakland, right? I was born and raised in Tacoma, where I'm kind of living now. I live in Fife, which is not too far from Tacoma. So I spent. We grew up in here until we left when I was twelve. I left California when I was twenty-three. So I spent twelve, thirteen years there. But it kind of rounded out my foundation, Raheem, because if you've ever been to Western Washington or West Coast, um, knowing your roots, pretty difficult. Uh, There's not too many black people, even in the state of Washington to this day. We're minuscule. And so my mom knew everybody in Tacoma. I thought I knew everything about being black till I got to Oakland. I got there, it was a wake-up call, brother. I was trying to get up out of that place. I I saw what the ghetto was like. Not that it was just us, but I got to see every facet of, you know, other people of color, Native American, Latino, Russian, even down there, Asian. I thought, wow, I thought I had it bad when I really had it good. Mm. But when I went to the all-black school at McClendon's, that's when I had a wake-up call because I got to see that we weren't what people thought we were. We were everything, you know, we were smart, we were intelligent, innovative, on cutting edge. Some of us just didn't apply it. 
And so I thank my mom after I graduated. I was like, you know what? Thank you for allowing me to see what we are as African-Americans. Even though I'm mixed with all this other stuff, I was, I was happy that because I didn't know. I didn't know my, who I was here in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And so going through that helped me out. Mm-hmm. So um, what year was that? Like when you went out to... Uh... We left in 1970, don't quote me on this, Raheem, but I'm going to say 71 or 72. So I was in the seventh grade, and then we left that year after I finished. That summer, we drove down to California. I did, uh, you know, finished my junior high school there, high school, went to college, and then came up here and finished my master's degree. And, you know, living in Oakland woke me up. Yeah, so he was way, like yeah. right in the the mix of everything in '71, yeah. like the Panthers and. Yeah, I, I'm gonna be honest with you, bro. Um, so we lived in North Richmond, was the hot spot where I lived. I mean, there was any kind you could think of; it was there. Then we moved to East Oakland. I lived off 99 East Oakland in these apartments. Kind of, well, I'm gonna call them Section Eight housing, right across the street from where the Panthers headquarters were. When they shot all the house up, I went inside. There's a tunnel under. That woke me up. I went to their church the whole time I was there in California. Went to their church, learned Taekwondo, got to meet um, some of the brothers in the in the program, and they are not what the political say they are. They are all about community, feeding people, touching people's lives. Um, I got to meet Angela Davis there. Mm-hmm. She was kind of one of their forefront people. So I got to learn a lot about who we were from the best. And when Huey P. Newton got killed, I was there. Because I, I ended up with an apartment on Lake Merritt. He lived in these nice condos. And we had heard they were out looking for him. Mm-hmm. And that really bothered me because I saw the work that he did. But at that point, he had kind of went underground, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and the SLA and all this other stuff was going on. And so he was a target at that point. Yeah, similar to... Um... The story in Chicago. It's a movie that just came out. Um, the what's it called Judas? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the story of Fred Hampton. Like they were making like impact in the community, like feeding like underserved and like providing programs for the people. And they weren't like being malicious at all. But no. they had a they they had a hit out on a man. And, it's crazy when you, when you think about it. Like, you think about it, like, we're trying to empower people that look like us, but that's a threat to people that don't look like us. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's kind of scary, but, um, you know, it's, it's still good to see hear those stories because some of that stuff is still happening now, yeah. you know. So we have to be aware of that as yeah. a people, you know. Yeah. Um, but I want to uh, shift the conversation slightly. Uh, I asked a question in the in the um, when you choose a calendar date for the interview. I asked a question to all the people that I interviewed. You uh, answered a certain way. I want to kind of ask you to dive a little deeper into it because I like your answer. Uh, the question was, "What does fatherhood mean to you?" And Mike, you said, uh, "Creating an environment where my children can thrive, allowing them to soar in life." Like so, uh, my question to you is. How did you create that environment for your children, for them to soar? Um, by accident. <laughs> I ended up, when I got into the ministry, I started, I was mentoring in the schools where I grew up here in Tacoma, and 
Um, I saw my own being devastated because of their fathers not around uh, and living in poverty. And something just grabbed me and said, you know what? There's some tools that we can put in their pathway to help them. And there's this program called Junior Achievement where they teach them how to do banking and open a business in grade school. They primarily take it to the rich areas, but I was allowed to teach this in, you know, uh, I'm gonna call the urban areas. And I taught it to my children. And my son and my daughter gravitated towards it immediately because it teaches you how to take a dollar and build and make a hamburger and how much it costs and what's your profit and all this. Make a long story short, they just gravitated. It was like playing, putting a puzzle together. So that was my first inkling of, you know, a thing to put on the table, reading to my children, planting that seed about, you know, what our history was. I did a, a skit at one of the high schools about my family. I didn't know my family helped found this city and that they were very influential. So when I did that, my daughter was like, wow, we're somebody. A lot of black children don't know that. And so that's kind of what, led down that pathway, uh, Sir Royce, is that God just put these pieces that kind of fell in my lap, my mom was telling me, and I just kind of built on it each year. And, you know, I'd go back and ask my children, what's your five and 10 year plan? I ain't playing with you. I need it written down. I need you to tell me, what's your five and 10 year plan when you get out of high school? And they thought I was playing with them. You know, my daughter kind of floundered with it. My son kind of floundered with it. My other son floundered but when they got graduated from high school, as soon as they walked out, I said, I need that five and 10 year plan. I want to see it in writing. I need you to regurgitate it. And my oldest son thought I was playing with him, the architect. He thought I was playing with him. I said, you got to August to get it straight. And so he called me on July 27th. Dad, uh, Dad, I got some information I need to share with you. And I was like, uh, it better be a job or go to school. And he said, can I take you somewhere? And he took me to a school. And I was like, well, what are you trying to do? He said, Dad, I want to be an architect. I'm like, okay, that's in your wheelhouse. I said, but what were you doing at school? He said, I, I aced the test. They want to let me go to school. I need your signature to pay. I signed that dollar line so fast, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, know, I didn't care what it cost. <laughs> and when I walked away, I said, son, you really impressed me. He said, it was all that teaching, all that foundation, all that preaching. And I thought, oh, I didn't know the effect it was going to have. Mm, yeah. But, you know, the Bible says, train up a child in the way they go. When they get old, they won't depart from it. That seed gonna take root at some point. <laughs> My grandma loved that. She loves that one. <laughs> man. <laughs> oh man, I heard that so much. That's true. It's so true. And and what's what's amazing is that uh, it's gonna leave an impact on your grandchildren. You know, that's something that your son is gonna pass down to his kids. You know, yeah. and then so forth. You know, um, so you laid a real big foundation, like for you know generations to come. That's, yeah. that's, that's really awesome. I, 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 I commend you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's cool. Did that answer your question, though? No. Nah, yeah, you gave me uh, actionable tips. I, I'm typing notes, too, so I got okay. uh, <laughs> stuff to give to the people. So if I have them create a plan, teach them about money management, and read to them. Those was what I, that's what I heard from you, like how you made that environment that led them to the people that they became. Yes. That they're becoming still, you know. Yes, that's awesome. Thank you. So, I know earlier you talked about you and your dad not really having a close relationship growing up. Did the lack of him being in your life did that teach you something like indirectly about fatherhood? Most definitely. Um, 
you know, Rahim, I was lucky enough to get into the banking business at a young age, and there ain't many of us in banking even to this day. No. Uh, I think there's only one black bank owned bank in America that by a country singer who's dead now, but um, he's the only one I could find. And I just thought, I, I mean, I was at a high level, I was a senior level, I was giving out millions of dollars all the time, and I was always running into people that didn't look like to me, and that bothered me, especially when you know, I'm kind of the boss and I can tell them yeah and nay and they didn't like it. And so that really devastated me. And I thought, man, why, was, why did my dad do that for me? But it wasn't his fault. You know, I, I look back generations, I said, wow, this is just, it's, I'm gonna call it a curse. And so I said to myself, I gotta break the curse. And that's when I said, mom, help me. I'm gonna surround myself with people that that are doing the right thing. So I surrounded myself with men that were being fathers, even though it was embarrassing for me. They get up my face, you know, Mike, that's not how you talk. And Mike, you don't do that. And it helped me kind of build that that shallow ground into something solid. Because I started listening. And you know, when I seen them at the table praying with their children and hey honey, how was school today? And I thought, man, I never done that. Yeah. You know, eating with the children. Most of the time I didn't do that. I was so busy. And I thought that's the key. That's when they soak it all in. And that's when my children would tell me how the day was when I took time with them. But I also took that time to show them what they had by showing them the children that didn't have, that were living mm -hmm. impoverished, that I ran this program for six years at the Y called Late Night, and I was a motivation speaker there. We grew the program from like 60 kids to 300 every Friday. I mean, they were just, they were in need. And when I speak to them, they start gravitating to me. I'm like, you know, I ain't your father. I ain't your, you know, I'm just trying to help you. But I found out that I was the only father figure they had. And so I brought in some key people that helped some of these kids that were failing in school to get some credits while they were there. I had them take some home ec classes, some cooking classes, some gym classes. I said, you know, I'm going to find somebody from the school district. My mom knows people, and I'll make sure you at least get one credit for going to those classes. As long as you're consistent, every Friday here on time, I don't hear no excuses, you'll get it. And so we had 20 children that graduated from that that were behind on credits. That one credit helped some of them graduate. Mm -hmm. They gave me all the credits. I said, no, 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 we all came together and kind of, you know, cleaned this up. It's just something God gave me. But I said, I made you guys accountable. You, you have to do the work, not me. Yeah. But I'm glad because I know those children to this day and some of them, you know, they didn't make it, that's on them. But there's a lot of them that did. And I think, you know, what I'm saying, Raheem, is that I think when we give people tools to put in their tool chest, they're either going to do something with it or they're not. But when you don't have the tools in your tool chest, we kind of already know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So do, do you feel like you, um, I guess, like, what kind of talents do you feel like you develop well that you receive from your dad and from your mom as, as well? Well, I know my dad was, was musically inclined. Uh, my fa dad's family's musically inclined. I believe that he he has this um, what do you call it fire in him, um, mm. where he's going to stand up to people. He was known as one of the baddest people around here. You know, somebody in trouble, beating up his family, he's going to tear them up. But he 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 used that in a good way. And so I see that fi same fire in me is that I'm going to stand up to people. I'll be an advocate. You're not going to just treat my people or people in my community like that. I'm not going to let it happen. Yeah. I don't care if the child's purple. You're not going to do that. And sometimes it surprises me when I'm speaking. Like, man, I must want to get shot. 
but it's me. And people know it. You know, like on my block that I live on, I just don't play. You know, there's some kids out here be like, you know, this is what I expect on my block in front of my house. And they see me kind of putting in my work. And so they, hey, Pastor Wilkins, uh, so-and-so down the street need help. Mm-hmm. And so they respect me, but they see me put the work in too. They, it's not out of vain, if that makes sense. And yeah. I ain't asking them for something that I wouldn't do as well. So now, I'm kind of actually the, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Raheem. Uh, no, you got it. I'm going to ask you the, the invert of that question. Um, what do you see in your grandchildren that's similar to you? Mm. Oh, definitely that fire, um, that nuance to stand up for themselves, innovative. I have a grandson that's six now. He's going to be seven. This boy is fire. I mean, when he goes someplace, he's a leader, natural leader. He just is in his wheelhouse. Well, he'll go, he went to, day, we took him to daycare one day and my daughter was out on drugs. So it was a different story, but I had to help raise him. Took him to daycare one day. I came and picked it up and the lady said, he's running the daycare. I said, he, what are you talking about? He's two. How's he running the daycare? And I went over there and got him. He was grabbing all the kids and telling them to do this. And I said, I said, Esco, you're not there, boss. Grandpa, I, I showed him how to jump. I thought, okay, where's he get? And then I said, to myself, that's just me. That's in him. So accept it. But he did it with, in a compassionate way because he cared about kids. And, you know, he didn't really know who his mom was at the time. So, you know, it was kind of, he was trying to find that part of his life. And I didn't really tell him because I didn't want him to degrade his mom or look, deface her or think bad about her. She just made a mistake and she has a child now. Mm-hmm. But I, it helped him kind of grow up uh, with some peaceful love, if that makes sense. And so I know he has that fire and that desire, that innovation. Um, and he's somebody that people gravitate towards for whatever reason. He's a definite leader. How old is he? He's six now, I'm going yeah, on six. seven. I got a 21-year-old. Well, he's about to be 21. Ooh, I almost got his birthday before it is. And he's a, he's an a engineer for Tesla. Oh, he's wow. another one that I thought wasn't going to go there. He's like 6'5". He's my daughter's son. Didn't do nothing after he graduated, you know, always talking and listening to crazy music. So I called him up two years ago, and I got up in his grill. I said, you know what? You're going to have to get your stuff together, boy. I said, come up here with me. No, I ain't coming up there, Grandpa. I know how you are. You, no, no, no. <laughs> and so he called me last two months ago and said, Grandpa, I, I'm in uh, so-and-so, and I'm working for Tesla as an engineer. I said, quit lying. And he sent me a certificate. I said, you go, boy. He said, well, yeah, it was all awesome. the pictures my mom gave me. <laughs> So, That's great. Yeah. Say so you have five grand grandchildren. So, yeah, you? about to have six. Okay. Yeah. When uh, is it your son or your daughter that's about to? My daughter. One? So I have two daughters. My youngest daughter is about to have one. So my oldest daughter has two. My uh, son adopted two, and um, my daughter is on her second one. My youngest daughter. Okay. Be what? What? Um, what was the first thing that, that you thought about when you learned that you were about to become a grand a grandfather? Ooh, bro. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, I, I almost flew off the earth. So when my daughter uh, gave birth in 2000 to my oldest grandson, um, I was there for everything. I cut the umbilical cord. I mm-hmm. took him home, took care of him for two weeks, took time off from work because I just wanted to bond with him because I learned my lesson. 
And so my daughter kind of made it convenient because she was out there still kind of figuring her life out. Mm-hmm. And so I asked for another time, some more time off. And they gave it to me. I, I didn't know anything about film at that time, but I took more time off. And this boy began to bond with me. And so when she came to take him, and security said, Dad, I'm going back to California. I was like, no, 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 you can't do that yet. Hold on. But I said to myself, it's not my child. And so I told her, I said, well, thank you for the opportunity to spend, you know, these four or five months with him. I appreciate it. Um, let's just make sure we stay in one another's lives. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, my daughter confides in me for just about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't judge her because she felt like she had made a mistake. She didn't really want to tell me she was pregnant. Which, you know, I told her, I said, look, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But at some point, you're going to give birth. So we got to talk. What do you want to do? You know, what's going to happen when that baby pop out a little too late? Mm -hmm. And so when she had her second child, she called me. Dad, you know, can you be here? I'm like, unfortunately, I can't. But, you know, my prayers are with you. But it was totally different for her because the father wasn't in life. And I tried to tell her that, you know, I could just see he was about to boot. I said, hey, you're going to end up being mama and daddy, but I can help be the daddy. I said, that's what family's about. It's that extended family. And she said, what do you mean? I said, if you need me to come down there and be that male figure, I'm there. I can be there on the phone. I can be there, you know, even social media now. And so one day she was having some trouble. She called me and said, you know, can you talk to my son? I said, absolutely, but we need to be on the same page because you're the parent. I'm grandpa. And so I need to know what's going on. She said, you know, he's just out of the pocket. I said, no, don't use those words. Give me details. Yeah. And I said, well, he's being a kid, you know, and you got to give him some boundaries. Yeah. So she did that and she said, man, he fell in line. I said, no, you gave him boundaries. Children expect boundaries. I said, if you get a dog and put him outside and put a fence around him, I said, you take a fence away from him, you're probably still like he's in that perimeter. It's just training. Not that it all is good, but it's just training. I said, when they expect you to give them these boundaries, they kind of try to live within them. They don't know any other thing. Mm. And as they get older, you open it up a little bit. Yeah, you got you got to expand it because they're going to do some things that surprise you. Sometimes yeah. make you upset, you know, but it's all about that development. You know, I tried some things that I definitely shouldn't try when I was young. Drugs and getting into gangs and doing things. But that spirit of that seed that my mother put in me always came back. It always came back. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I got in the game, I was like, ooh, my mom ain't gonna like this. <laughs> you know, I can't tell her. And if she see me with the gun, I had to go there. I'm like, oh my goodness, she had to get off of my ear, embarrass me in front of my friends. And I said, okay, mama, I'll get out of it. She said, why'd you get there? I said, for protection. I didn't, I didn't want to do nothing. It's just for protection. Yeah. She said, well, you out of it today. I said, well, you ain't got to go to that school. She said, you know what, Michael, you're making excuses. She was right. She was right. I said, you know, I had to stand up to the game one day. I just told him, I said, look, you know, y'all want to jump me? I guess I'm going to get me six for I go down. And I wasn't playing. I was like, I'm going to get me six. And I don't know what the rest of you four are going to do because you're going to be wounded. But I'm not playing. And they left me alone just because I said that. And I was like, no. But they jumped me one day. Well, you know, back in those days, we didn't have uh, backpacks to carry our books in. We had to carry them in our hand. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through with 10 books, man, they told me a new one. Mm-hmm. And I got up and told them some new ones. And, you know, I got all 10 of them. Like, you know what? If this is what it's going to be like every day, I got to go to school to learn at that school, then I guess everybody, excuse my name, going to get an ass whooping. 
<laughs> the dude said, it's like that. I said, yep, it's like that. I said, I got to be by myself. I don't know nobody. And so one dude said, man, I'm going to be your friend. I said, no, you joked me, man. But we did become friends, and I learned that. He said, it's just I like your fortitude. I like the food you stand up for yourself. I said, man, I don't have no choice. Yeah. He said, no, a lot of people just lay down and take ass whoopings. Keep my language. I said, well, we don't have to do that. And then I kind of gave him some boundaries about slavery. I said, you know, that's what they want us to do. They want us to degrade one another, beat up one another. He said, because they think we ain't nothing no way. When I said that to him, he's like, man, dude, truth, truth. And he said, that's what the Panthers be speaking about. I said, yeah, but you ain't listening. Mm. And so I kind of converted three of them. The rest of them, you know, they did what they did. But I learned a lot being in the gangs that it can be something good or it can be something bad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of them do some things that I definitely wouldn't do. Robbing one another, killing one another, prostituting women, drugs and all those things. But I think it's just a trap they fall into. The gang that I was in, we, we actually started doing some good things. Helping the school out. We, we striked at the school. It was because of our gang that the school went on strike because we were just tired of the way we were being treated. We weren't being treated uh, with equity and inclusion. You know, they just threw books at us, the raggedest books. The teachers didn't care. We were like, we're done. We went on strike. And you'll never guess who showed up. Cool. You've heard of Rainbow Coalition, yeah? Yeah. Jesse Jackson showed up at my school. <laughs> this young Jesse, right? This like uh, in his prime, mean, Jesse. He was on fire, man. When he came, and, you know, we, I got to shake his hand and talk to him. But he said, "Man, you guys got noticed because we were on the news for because we were all black school and on strike." But when he came, he said some things, Sir Royce, that cemented our whole faith. Huh. You know, you are somebody. Mm. When he said that. He said, it doesn't matter you go to all black school. He said, I can send you to Harvard. It ain't the school you go to. It's the mind I send. Yeah. When he said that, he said, this school is what you make it. Mm. So stop acting like savages, because some of us did. And when he said that, everything for us changed. How so? Um, so the school was only, McClellan's at the time was only noted for athletics, football, basketball, baseball, tennis, those things. Um, they really didn't take note of our scholarships, yeah. our people that were smart. But by the 12th grade, our school was getting a national attention. So there was one uh, student from my school that went to UCLA on a tennis scholarship, another one on a chess scholarship. I mean, all these things started taking place, and we won the national, not the national, the state championship for basketball that year, and people just started taking notice. And it was all because of what we did. And we still, and we were proud, you know, we saw people graduate with a 4.0 and this and that. And I thought, wow, we aren't as dumb as what people think we are and what we were telling ourselves. Yeah. But it was the environment. I mean, if I, I'll say in short phrases, sir, Sir Royce, the school, when we got in school, they locked the fence behind us, put a chain on it. They locked the windows, put chains on that. They treated us like we were slaves and we acted accordingly yeah. and we didn't have to. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. So I, I want to ask you, how did you get into uh, ministry? Um, I got into ministry in 1995. It, it kind of was just, it was always in my blood. 
Um, Raheem, I, I'm going to just say it was in my blood because I would hear speeches and I'd be preaching kind of under my voice and somebody heard me. And so this last time in 1995, I heard um, Reverend Martin Luther King's, you know, I have a dream speech. And I was regurgitating it word for word. I don't know why, but I was at church with my grandmother and the, pa the pastor of the church heard me and said, what, what are you doing over there? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I, I'm sorry I'm interrupting. He said, no, I want to hear you say that again. In fact, come on Martin Luther King Day's birthday and give us a speech. I was like, ah, oh, no, I ain't ready. No, no, he said, yeah, you are. And so I had to grab a scripture to put with it. But when I got done, I got a standing ovation and I, I lost it. I was like, uh-uh, this, no. I was just playing. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be heard. But he came to me and, and kind of gave me this grace and said, you know what? You got the anointing on you. And I was like, what's that? And basically, it's a gift that God gives you. But he said, you need to make sure you um, you keep that honed and you need to keep it sharp. And so I started studying things with speech, but not the Bible. And so I started doing my um, mentoring in the schools and I started getting this gravitation toward me. I don't know why, but I'm going to give the, that to God. But I ended up being on the news here locally. I mean, one day I came to school and they said, hey, we want you to talk to these kids that you've been talking to. We need to know what your, what your point of phrase is. And I'm, I'm like, man, you guys been hearing me talking for a couple of years. What are you talking about? And I saw these people walking. I said, is somebody in trouble today? I see the news out there. Was there a shooting? Is there gang violence in the school? What's going on? Mm -hmm. Nobody told me anything. They just asked me to walk into this room, and I saw all these cameras, and I was like, okay, I don't know what that's for, but it ain't for Mike. <laughs> so they asked me to step to this, this podium and speak. And I, you know, I just kind of blocked everything out, Raheem. I just blocked it out. I, I wasn't thinking. And mm -hmm. I got there, and I kind of regurgitated um, Reverend Jackson's speech, you are somebody, but in my own way. And I got a standing ovation. All these people asked me, please come to this school, come to that school. I'm like, okay. Um, did you like what you heard? They said, you got this fire and this passion that kids need to hear. And where'd that come from? I said, you know, I'm going to have to give it to my forefathers. I said, my family helped found this state. I, it's just in my blood. I said, but I ran. And now I'm not running anymore. I'm running for what this is. But I need your help. I said, I'm not as polished as some other people. I need to know what I shouldn't say. And when I'm not including everybody because I was mainly talking about black people and you know there's Caucasian, Asian, Latino and so they gave me these words to kind of bring everybody in and I thought that was more polished and more inclusive so it helped me. Okay. Now um, man first off that's a amazing story man it's uh, rare that we have these conversations with uh, people that have been through like what you've been through. So, you know, thanks. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, um, how did, you know, that experience or those experiences um, shape you as a father? They gave, they gave me some humility. Um, when I was at the school speaking, my children were kind of scattered, you know, my, my oldest daughter and oldest son were with me, but my other three children weren't. And so I ran into this principal that knew my mom, that knew me, knew my, my brother. And he gave me some words when he said, Michael, 
you got to go back and redeem yourself. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? I'm playing the season. He says, hey, these people are going to start asking you some hardcore questions. Where are your children? How are they doing? Yeah. Are you a father to them? And when he said that, I was like, ooh, he's right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm over here trying to call the kettle black, and I ain't even polishing it up. And so when he said that, I went back and found my youngest boy on my own. I just I, I knew his grandmother's name, looked her up, called her up. I said, you know what? I want to see my son. And she she's a white woman, so I'm just tell you that. Um, I thought she was going to blast me because she can't stand black people. I thought she was just going to blast me. She said, Michael, here's his telephone number. I want you to go see your grandson. And I started crying. She said, what's wrong? I said, I'm sorry I failed you. I'm sorry I haven't been a father. She said, you still can be. I said, you're going to allow me to be? She said, I don't have anything to do with it. That's up to you. You have it in you. I see it. And when she said that, I was like, what is she talking about? She can't stand my guts. <laughs> so she invited me to come over to her house, and you know, I got to talk to her husband. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry, sir. He said, you know what? I grew up racist. I don't like black people. But something about you makes me want to change my mind. I said, that's no, it's my grandson. It's my grandson. That's how he said it. That's how he said it. But I knew he was talking about my grandson. And I said, you know, sir, why are you racist? He says, well, that's all I know. I said, well, it ain't all you can learn. Yeah. And I, so yeah. I said, you know, I'm learning something while you're learning something. I said, let's both learn together. And so when I ended up in the banking, I ran into him because he owned the RV center. And they came in to get a loan done that was half raggedy, if you want to know what I'm saying. Just half raggedy put together, I wasn't going to take it. And when I went down there, I saw the name on the paper. I'm like, he can't be the owner of this place. I knew he had money. And I knew he was a millionaire. I, I said, he can't be the owner. But then I walked in. I said, I need to see so-and-so. And when he came out, he looked at me and like, he dropped all of his papers like, oh, shit. <laughs> I get it. And I, I didn't say anything to him. Ben. I said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, this is what I need the paperwork to look like when it comes to the bank I'm at doing your paper. I said, you wouldn't take this no other place without this structure, right? And it wouldn't get done, right? He said, yep. I said, so bring it to me clean like you want it, and I'll do it. And so he brought it over, and he says, why did you talk to me that way? I said, I could have just told you no. Mm. I said, but let me tell you something. I know my bank got more money than you. And I'm in charge of it. Sure. And I want to help you. And so he said, you're right. I said, I want to help you grow your business so that you'll be down that whole block rather than on half of it. So he started bringing me a million dollars worth of business, and then he died. And I didn't even know. I mean, when he passed away, I didn't know. I had a feeling. But I talked to my son. I said, hey, what happened to uh, what's called business? He said, daddy passed away. And this part of me said, man, I never got to say I was sorry to him. I never got to say what I really wanted to say. I was holding it because I was afraid. I wish I had said some things, but I got to say it to his wife and to his daughter, you know, mother of my, my son. I just went to her. I said, you know what? I repeated something that I should have never done. I wasn't a father. I ran. For that, I'm sorry. Will you accept my apology? And she kicked me out of her house, and I was almost in the car, and she came back, and she said, what made you do all this? Why, why did you chase us down? I said, because my father needs a son. I mean, my son needs his father. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what? You're right, Michael, because too many black boys are going without their father. Thank you for doing all that. You could have just called me. I said, yeah, but 
I didn't think he wanted to talk to me. Mm. So I was kind of running scared. But, you know, I think God puts you in places and pieces of the puzzle get put in front of you, and you got to either take them and use them or let them fly away. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, so uh, I guess I want to ask you about that experience, man. Like, what was in your in your head and in your stomach when you was going to the people's house knowing like they didn't like you and just I guess I honestly wasn't gonna go uh Raheem I was gonna talk myself out of it I was gonna make an excuse that I need to go to a barbecue or a family function yeah but God made me get in the car I don't know why I wanted to see my son so bad God made me get in the car when I got over to this area where they live I mean it's a wealthy area. He lived on the ninth hole of this golf course. I drove up and I was like, wait, Michael, you're going to have to humble yourself. I'm going to this million dollar house. It got three floors and, you know, I got to talk to this man and his wife. And when I walked in, they let me sit down and eat with him. Mm. And that's what blew me away. I, I, I was nervous and sweating. He said, relax, Michael, relax. You're family. I'm like, the hell I am. Oh, you know, I ain't getting none of your dividends, man. <laughs> but he said, you know, you're my son, my grandson's father. So you're really considered family. When he said that, I look, I like to look people in the eye. When he said I might cry, I just said, I felt it. I was like, whoa, okay, this is real. Yeah. He's, he's learning and, I'm, and I'm learning. And he put his hands around me and said, I'm learning to love you, but I need you to love your son like you talk. Because he had heard some of my speeches. He had heard some of the things I've done. He said, you need to start walking the talk. And when he said that, I was like, you know what? I can no longer afford to fake it. I kind of been faking it. I can no longer afford to fake it because my children are the ones that are getting the brunt end of this. Not him, not me, my children. And so that's why I told my son, I said, you know what? I don't care where you go. I don't care where your mom lives. I'm going to find you. I'm going to be there. Whatever you need, I'm going to be here. So one day he called me and this is 2021. I'm going to say it was 2011. I had cancer. I wasn't doing too well. Um, Dad, I need some money. I'm like, this, this boy calling me, what? I've been paying all this child support. Dad, I need some money. My car's broke down. And so I said, okay, what's going on, son? Tell me the real truth. Is your car broke down or did you spend the money? He said, I spent too much money on my job or whatever, and I just need the money. I said, how much you need? He said, um, he told me what the money, I said, meet me tomorrow, I'll give it to you. I ain't got no problem giving it to you. He said, there's, there's no, you don't want anything back? I said, no. But when he got there, I had my adopted son in the car, and he hadn't met him. Mm -hmm. I might cry now because God opened this door for me to get this little boy. And so I hadn't raised this boy and he sees this, you know, considered to be a foster kid that I just adopted sitting in the back seat sleeping. So I rolled down the window. I said, I want to let you know that's your brother. And I got out of the car and I said, you know, I need you to understand why I had to adopt him. And he said, what do you mean, Dad? I said, I wasn't there for you. His mom and dad can't be there for him. I said, God opened this window. I didn't want to adopt him, but it was just right. I said, and I'm hoping that this makes our relationship more solid. Mm. Because you see a kid in me, you ain't doing without anything. You're not living in poverty. Mostly because of your mom's family, but because I cared enough to come back. 
I didn't have to come back. There's no rule out there could make me. I said, but I came back, didn't I? I said, I found you. You didn't look for me. And he started crying. He said, yeah, you're right. I said, and if you don't want to be in my life anymore, I totally understand. But I'm going to be in yours, spirits. So I'm just going to be there. I'm not going to let this stop. I said, I'm going to tell you why. Because it's happened too many times in previous generations. It's time to stop now. He says, oh, okay. I said, remember I told you we're going to break the cycle? I said, it's broken. So let's just not play these games anymore. You've seen what I do with children. That's what God told me to do. I said, it was my way to pay it forward for what I did for you. Mm. And he said, okay, thank you. I said, if you need something from me, son, let's just make sure it's not always money. <laughs> no, and I wasn't saying that in a bad way. It's like, sometimes you just need love. Sometimes you just need to talk. Sometimes you just need some, some condolence or something. Sometimes you just need help. You don't always just need money. And he didn't understand that until he called me one day and said, you know, my girlfriend left me. What am I supposed to do? I said, you're talking to the wrong person, man. I've messed up on too many relationships. But I went to the Bible and I, I started reading some stuff and I gave it to him. I said, son, call her up and, re and repent. Just tell you, you know, you didn't know how to handle it. That you didn't really have a father. She knows that. She met me. I said, just be honest. Be forthwith and transparent. And so he did it. He didn't get her back, but she at least cares enough about him to this day she still checks on him she said i love you but i can't love you as a mate i love you for being you know truthful i said sometimes that's what women need because they've been so broken um and you know some of it's our fault as a man i said and this black woman is somebody she's a cheerleader for the football team she's a chief cheerleader she got a scholarship and she picked you <laughs> and also, so when he did it, he told me, he said, thank you, Dad, for that advice because it helped me kind of see where I was going, that pathway I was making. I, I was running like you. I said, that's why I stopped you. Oh, that's powerful, man. I know we, um, we're getting close to time, but I, I want to ask you one last question. Yes, sir. Um, if you could give advice to a young father, uh, what would it be? Don't stop trying to be one. Mm. No matter what. I don't care what obstacles come your way. They're going to come. Yeah. I heard this sermon called crushing, meaning you're going to go through some things. You're going to have some hills to climb, some valleys to fall in. That's what makes you a better person, as long as you don't let it kill you. Yeah. As long as you don't let it defeat you. Just don't stop trying to be a father. Because there's everything out there to make you stop. Social media, distractions, TV, you know, beautiful women, whatever it is, all those tangible things are out there. But the most important thing is being a father, being a husband, being that community that we have. And if you don't do that, you're going to look back and it'll be a little too late. Mm. You know, you may not get the opportunity that I have. That God did that. I didn't do that. Some of us pass away before we get to plant that seed yeah. or something happens. And so take advantage of it, soak it up because I look back now and that what it could have should have sometimes burns a hole in me, but I've learned from it. And to me, as long as you learn from it, you're a better person. So take it from me, somebody that had four children out of wedlock, wasn't always there, felt embarrassed. You don't have to be a perfect father. 
There is no such thing. No. The only perfect father there was is Jesus, and we hung him on the cross. So, you know, right. they don't come after us because we're smart, we're eloquent, we are go-getters, but don't give up in the fight. Fight. Fight for your right to be a father because it's essential. It's the pinnacle of life. You know, if I could give a million dollars away to be the father that I should, I would because it's more than money. It's about the impact you leave when you're dead and gone. I can I can hear that fire. I can hear that fire. That, uh, <laughs> I can hear it in your grandchildren too. <laughs> talking the same way. <laughs> Man, uh, definitely thank you for this. This is uh, I always, I, I've said this the last couple of episodes, but this is one of my favorite episodes. Uh, I will put this in the Hall of Fame because uh, you definitely have an amazing story. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing it. Thank you for sharing it, Mike. I, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You, you don't know what this means, Sir Royce, because you didn't have to give it to me. You didn't have to give it to me, you know. So I, I humbly say thank you because, you know, for some reason God link, he reaches out to people on LinkedIn and they're, they're looking at my page and they like it. I can't give that to nobody else but God. Yeah, definitely, man. All right, so for Sir Royce Brialis and for Dr. Raheem Young. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Appreciate. Hey, but, Royce, I'm hold sorry. on a second. I'm sorry for cutting you off. But, uh, Mike, um, if people wanted to get in contact with you. Oh, right. My bad. Yeah, can you let them know <laughs> how, how they can uh, reach you? Uh, sure. I don't know my LinkedIn page number, so I want to I got it in the link. I got the link for it. You can, you can share that. Uh, they can also reach me on email at restoration underscore counseling at yahoo.com. Um, I would give up my phone number, but God has told me not to do that. So I'm going to say, you know, reach out to me, email or LinkedIn, and I'll kind of vet the process from there because my time with my family is precious. Also, I have your Instagram handle. Positive oh, okay, yeah. is me. Just as it sounds. Search him out. He's on Instagram. I He's am. awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please thanks. reach out to me. I'd be glad to help anybody I can. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. If I could put this plug in before we're done, uh, uh, I have ahead. a book coming out that's going to be released in June or so. Um, that's about surviving cancer. Um, I'll, I won't give you the title yet because I can't do that, but please read the book if you can. Please buy the book because I'm going to give a dollar from every book sold back to the community. I'm, I'm trying to give back a million dollars, but I can tell you the book will help you if you're going through anything in life, especially a sickening disease. Okay. Yeah, that's something we can actually do for um, Father's Day. If that comes out in June, we can uh, do some giveaways and give those away, like a few bucks away, like from okay. us to the people, to, to dads. So uh, we're going to talk about that after this, but uh, yeah, definitely appreciate that. Okay. All right. Anything else, brothers? Nah, that's <laughs> a good All right. <laughs> nah, this is a good one. This is a, a great episode. And again, Mike, I appreciate it, man. Uh, and for myself, uh, Sir Royce Brialis, and for Dr. Raheem Young, you know, signing off WCF interviews. Enjoy and uh, leave a review if you're so inclined. This is a great one. Uh, yeah, signing off. Yes, yes. 
Thank you for listening to WTF Interviews. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us via our website, wtfatherhood.org. Also, our Facebook page and our Facebook group will be listed in the description below as well. Uh, I ask you to leave a a review as it helps more people receive the message. And uh, again, until next time, be well. You already are.